And we're going back to our uh, series in Romans, Romans chapter 2. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If not, words are going to be on the screen. We're going to look at Romans chapter 2, verses 17 to 24. And Paul is addressing the issue of Christian hypocrisy. Uh, There are probably very few things that draw, in our culture, in our society, that draw out our anger, that draw out our distaste more than somebody that uh, is flagrantly uh, committing hypocrisy. And it in some sense, it is both challenging and comforting to know that Paul and Jesus before him addresses this issue of what do we make of hypocrisy in the church specifically? What do we make of it? And hear God's word from Romans chapter 2, verses 17 to 24. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, then you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the nations because of you. Let's pray. This is God's word. Father, the... uh, The Apostle Paul uh, found it both troubling and ironic late in his life that you would call him a former murderer to preach a gospel of life. And Father, I too find it uh, in a sense ironic that you would uh, call a hypocrite to uh, preach a message on hypocrisy. The act in itself is hypocrisy. And yet your grace is real. Yet your calling is real. And so we pray that we might be challenged and comforted by the words that you have for us in this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Just after 9-11 on September 13th, 2001, a very well-known pastor, a very well-known Protestant minister was interviewed on television and uh, asked about 9-11 and the tragedy of 9-11. And he began to name all the, the people and the groups uh, in society that uh, he found uh, illegitimate, that he found immoral, that he found um, outside the scope, so to speak. And he began to raise his voice and get angry. And he talked about those groups and those people. And he pointed his finger and he said, about 9-11, he said, I look at you and say, I point the finger at you and say, you helped this happen. A man, a preacher called to preach mercy and grace, suddenly had none to offer, the essence of hypocrisy. Later on, 2006, very well-known, extremely well-known evangelical pastor, led a megachurch of about 15,000. He was well-known for his his preaching and his stances against adultery, his preaching and his stances against, especially against homosexuality and homosexual marriage. And in 2006, uh, he revealed that he himself had been uh, been committing adultery 
and participating in homosexuality. It was the essence of hypocrisy. It was the essence of what Paul says, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? And apparently Christians have ginned up quite a reputation uh, for hypocrisy. Once Mahatma Gandhi was asked, why, Mah- Gandhi, why do you reject Christ? And he said, I don't reject Christ. I reject Christians because so few of them look like their master. There's a popular bumper sticker that reads, Jesus, save me from your followers. Jesus, save me from your followers that, that, that kind of, if you are a Christian, kind of, uh, you know, gives you a little shot to the gut um, because it recognizes how we are generally looked at in society. A hypocrite is someone who doesn't practice what he preaches. Literally, the word hypo- hypocrisy or hypocrite means somebody that's acting on a stage, somebody that's in a play or, in, or who is an actor and pretending to be something that he or she is not. And you heard Paul address it there. You teach others, do you not teach yourself? You talk about don't steal, but you steal. You talk about don't commit adultery, you commit adultery. Um, this is what Paul is talking about in hypocrisy. And what we're looking at this morning is where does this come from? Where does it come from? What are the marks of it? How do I know that, that, I'm, uh, that I'm committing it or, or, or not committing it? And then what are the consequences uh, of it? What are the stakes of it? And so Paul is going to tell us, really just teach us three things in this passage. Uh, the roots of hypocrisy, the marks of hypocrisy, and the stakes of hypocrisy. So the roots, the marks, and the stakes. First, he looks at the roots of hypocrisy. Where does this come from? How does hypocrisy get in my heart? How does it get in my life? Where does it come from? Why is it there? And Paul begins to tell us by first pointing out the mindset of religiosity, the mindset of moral supremacy. And so he starts to address, for the first time in the letter of Romans, he starts to address the Jew, not ethnically, not pointing out their ethnicity, pointing out their religiosity. And what he says is where, where this come from, the, the root of hypocrisy lies surprisingly in the privileges of God. Now that's an interesting fact, that the, the, that the roots of hypocrisy are in the privileges of God because what the Jewish people have seen is that the privileges that God has given them has led to unbelievable pride in their lives. You see it in verse 17 and 18. What does he say? Uh, listen to the privileges. He says, you call yourself a Jew. You rely on the law. You boast in God. You know his will. You approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law. Look at the privileges. He said, you, you, you called a Jew, right? You have a special name. You've been called by God. You've been honored by God. He said, you boast in God. You, in other words, I have a relationship with God. I know God. He says, uh, you, you, uh, you boast in the law. In other words, I have the law. I have God's truth. And then later on in the past, you'll see a circumcision. In other words, you have circumcision, this, this sign that God has you know, uh, called you and welcomed you and, and, and made you uh, one of his people. And what that's done, Paul is saying, is basically created this a privilege that has led to pride. It's a mindset of religiosity. And before we condemn them, before we, you know, kind of have our tirade against Pharisees and legalists and moralists, uh, look how similar maybe we are. You see, Christians, well, we have the same thing. We've been named, we've been called a special name, we've been called Christians, Christ followers. Uh, we have the Bible. We believe we have God's very word in the Bible. We believe that we know God, we have a relationship with Him, and we've been given baptism, the Old Testament form, uh, uh, the New Testament form of uh, circumcision, the mark of entrance into uh, God's community. And what we see is that over time, these privileges stop being gifts of God and they start being marks of my merit. They start being points of pride. How does this happen? 
Well, let me let me try to broaden the imagination. Just imagine, if you will, uh, if there were there were three friends and they were all very poor and they lived in a one room uh, shanty in the slums. And, and one day, one of the three friends came and, and met a, a very generous benefactor. One of the three three, three fr- friends met this philanthropist. He said, "You know what? You shouldn't be living there. I'm going to buy you this huge mansion up on the hill." And so he buys uh, the the one friend a giant mansion up on the hill and he moves in and at first he's just amazed that everything has never seen such a house such a place uh but over time he begins to believe i belong here i got this is my house i i i'm one of these i'm one of these people and he's now living up on the hill and he rarely visits his friends anymore in the slums he, he doesn't use his house to welcome people in uh welcome people in or let his friends move in he, he may not have enough room for them uh anymore he begins to, he lives on the house and he looks down uh, condescendingly on the people who live down there, out there. That's what's begun to happen. That's what happens when we develop a mindset of religiosity. That's what happens when we live in a privileged pride and we take what have been gifts of God by His pure grace and we begin to believe, I deserve this. I'm a pretty good person. I do a heck of a lot of things for God. I do a lot of things for Him and I deserve this. And humility begins to die in our heart. Now, if you're, if you're, if you're a non-Christian here and you're kind of thinking, well, why would I come to, why would I become a Christian? Because isn't that just becoming, you know, just another religion, follow another religion, join another religion? Uh, I would say absolutely not. Christianity, in fact, Jesus came to say Christianity is not religion. And in fact, if you want to be a Christian, you have to abandon your religion to follow Jesus. You have to abandon your pride to follow Jesus. Remember, some of Jesus' harshest words are reserved for who? All the immoral people out there? All the sinners out there? No, actually, that was his kindest words were for them. His harshest words were for the religious people. Those are the ones he called whitewashed tombs. Those are the ones he called brood of vipers. He said to them that the pimps and the prostitutes come into the kingdom of God before you do. Remember the great story in Luke 18 where Jesus compares the two men praying. One is a righteous Pharisee. He's very moral. He knows the law. He has all these privileges, right? And how does he pray? He says he stands out in the middle of the street and he raises his hands and he looks up to heaven and he says, Thank you, God, that I am not like these people. I'm not like this other man over here, this sinful, dirty, evil tax collector, because I fast and I pray and I tithe and I give. And then Jesus says about the dirty, evil, sinful tax collector, how does he pray? He says, he won't even look up, he's on his knees, tears are streaming down his face, and he says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus looks at the crowd and says, I tell you the truth, that man, the immoral one, will go home justified today. How do we know if we're really getting the gospel? How do we know if hypocrisy is starting to take root in our lives? It's in the heart attitude of humility. Is humility growing up out of our hearts? Are we looking out at other people at how immoral and wicked and sinful they are out there? Or is there a sense of humility that is blossoming up because we recognize we have these privileges? not because of anything we have done, but because God himself is a God of mercy and beauty and love and grace. That is the essence. That is how you cut the roots of hypocrisy. But, but, but what are the marks of hypocrisy? If the root is in a privileged pride, when it starts to grow, what does it look like? 
Paul tells us it looks like two things. It looks like a condescending attitude and a complacent attitude. See that in verse 19 and 20. He says, uh, Paul says, if you are sure, in other words, see, if you're sure of yourself, if you're certain, then you can be the condescending. If you're sure of yourself, you're certain that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children. You hear what he's saying there? There's a condescending attitude that takes place in the religious heart, that takes place in the, hip, the hypocritical heart, because it says, I'm a professor, I'm an instructor, and these are, the, these are the children out here. These are the foolish ones. I am a guide. They are the blind. I am in the light. They are in the darkness. And you begin to develop an exalted attitude. You begin to develop an us-them mentality. Suddenly, I'm up here, and they are out there. And uh, we see this in all kinds of ways. Last night I was at McDonald's and I was working on my sermon. I was doing something very religious. I was uh, studying my Bible. I was, you know, preparing to preach. And uh, there was this loud gaggle of uh, teenagers uh, right over behind me. Um, and they were loud and they were annoying and they were obnoxious and they were, and they were screaming across the restaurant. And they were using obscenities and they were talking down to each other and they were being rude to the uh, people behind the counter and, and on and on and on. And as I'm sitting here preparing a sermon on hypocrisy and judgmentalism, I start to judge them and I start to hate them in my heart. Who in the world are these people? Where are their parents? Who, who raised these kids? What, what's going on? Don't they have... I mean, come on. And suddenly, a man called to preach grace and mercy has no grace and mercy. Suddenly there's an exalt, there's a condescending looking down my nose at who they must be, where they must come from, what they must be doing, and how much better I am because I'm there preparing a sermon while they are disrupting me. We see it in the political scene. We're about to, two days away from historic midterm elections. And, you know, I can tell you, I, I, I look down my street and I see people with yard signs supporting propositions and candidates that I don't support and to tell you the truth, I just think they're complete morons, you know. And I, <laughs> and and uh, I, I look down. I look at my neighbor and go, you know what? I could be an instructor to them if they would just come. Let me teach them. I could guide the blind. I could give light to the darkness if they would just listen to me. I mean, we could make this world a better place if I could be king for the day. Then everything would be set right in the world. And I began to hate my neighbors because they don't have the same political persuasions that I do. And so I have a condescending attitude, and God finds it heinous. So the first mark is condescension, and the next one is complacency, and you see it in 21 and 22. Uh, and this is where the hypocrisy uh, really comes out. He says, You who teach others, do not teach yourself. You preach against stealing, why do you steal? You say one doesn't, shouldn't commit adultery, and you commit adultery. You abhor idols. If you, you, if you abhor idols, do you rob temples? It's not only a condescending attitude, it's a complacent attitude. You hear it right there. You know what? I get to teach everybody else, but I am exempt. I am complacent. See, I can teach others, but I don't have to teach myself. I, 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 I can talk about not stealing for you, but for me, you know, Things are okay. I can take the, the speck out of your eye, but not be willing to deal with the law in my eye. And what Paul is saying is the gospel has no room for that type of moral superiority. The gospel has no room for that type of 
ego trip in any kind of way. And you see that just complacency. What happens is, you know, when, when I lie, what is it? It's a, it's a peccadillo. It's a, it's a white lie. It's just a, you know, you don't understand because there, was, there were pressures and there were, you know, misunderstandings and there were people that did this. And you don't quite understand. I had to kind of tweak the truth a little bit to, you know, to work around. But when somebody else lies to me, oh, my word, it is a radical betrayal of trust and breach of contract. And, and cre- you know, it's, it's, it's so much more magnified when everybody else does it. Uh, hip- the marks of hypocrisy, uh, not only a condescending attitude, but a, a, a complacency that sets in that says, I can teach others, but I don't have to teach myself. I don't have to scrutinize myself. I don't have to look at myself to see what is in my own heart. And what we see is it destroys mercy. It destroys the mercy that God intended us to show to the world. Why? Because, you know, go back and read the, the, the book of Acts. What you see in the beginning of the church is the gospel transcends every barrier out there, every political barrier, every racial barrier, every socioeconomic barrier, every gender barrier. The gospel just blows across it because there wasn't a condescending, complacent attitude. And when I am condescending and I can't stand those teenagers disrupting me or I can't stand those people that don't agree with me politically, there's no way that the mercy of God comes out. There's no way the gospel transcends those boundaries because judgmentalism or hypocrisy lives in my heart. And I have to say, if you're a non-Christian here, I have to apologize to you. I have to apologize because you may not have uh, been able to hear the true gospel. You may not have been able to see who Jesus really is because of the hypocrisy that lives in my heart, because of the hypocrisy that lives at times in the Christian community. And we just have to apologize for that right up front, but I also want to challenge you. If you're a non-Christian, I also want to challenge you. If you've been offended, if you've been burned by uh, hypocrisy in the church, I, 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 I want to apologize, but I also want to challenge you. And I thought about this in terms of an illustration uh, because I have a friend, a good friend named TJ, who lives in uh, in Birmingham, and uh, he's a pastor too. And he, he a couple years ago he hosted a college retreat. A bunch of college students came, and he was kind of the the uh, the pastor for the weekend or whatever. And they played a lot of basketball this weekend. Uh, this particular weekend, and uh, there was one college kid, and, and he, he kept coming up and challenging TJ, and so TJ is asking about his game. He said, you know, my game, I, I compare my game to that of Steve Nash and Dirk Nowitzki. But if you know anything about the NBA, those were the two, at the time, the two previous NBA MVPs of the league, right? And so this college kid's, you know, talking junk, and so they, they decide to go out and play, and they go out and play the game, the, the, the game and TJ beats him 15 to 0. Not 15 to 13, 15 to 0, uh, to, totally destroys him, totally humiliates him. And, and yet he's still talking later on that night about how his game is like Dirk Nowitzki and, and Steve Nash. And, and, and you're like, is this guy completely clueless, completely out of the mainstream here? What's wrong with him? And, and the challenge that I would issue is, if you were considering becoming an NBA fan, you could look at that foolish college kid and say, I'm not even going to consider the NBA because... If that's what Dirk Nowitzki, that's what the MVPs play like, what do I care to watch? Or you could come and see for yourself. If you're considering, if you're not sure if you believe in Christ this morning, you could look and, and identify and name, as I've already done, lots of hypocrisy in the church, lots of foolish Christians who have acted foolishly, and you could reject Jesus on that basis, or you could come and you could see for yourself. You could come and examine Christ on his own merits. You could come and see who he really is, who he really says uh, he is. 
So if the roots uh, of Christian hypocrisy are privileged pride and the marks are condescension and complacency, the last question is, what is at stake in Christian hypocrisy? What, what, are, the, what are the stakes? And it's a lot, I, I think often we think that our, our behavior as Christians, the, the stakes are simply, you know, basically just me asking a prayer of forgiveness again and everything's kind of settled. But Paul said the stakes are actually a lot larger. Look at what he says in the last two verses there. He says, you boast in the law, you who boast in the law, you dishonor God by breaking the law. For, quotes Isaiah chapter 52 here, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among all the nations because of you. The name of God is blasphemed among all the nations because of you. What Paul is saying is at stake in our Christian walk at stake in our Christian hypocrisy is the very name of God. At stake is the very reputation of God in all the earth, in all the world, among all the nations. At stake is the very mission of God to bless every nation. If I were to ask the general, everyday, average Christian, what is the message of Christianity? If I ask you, what is the message of Christianity? Just give me a sentence. What's the message of Christianity? Most of us would probably say something like, the message of Christianity is that Jesus loved me, so he died for me, and now he has a relationship with me. Now, that's, that's true, but what's the problem? The problem with that definition is me. The problem with the definition is me. I am the object. God loves me. He sent Jesus to die for me, and now he lives in a relationship with me, and the end. Paul is saying, that's not the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is bigger than me. The message of Christianity involves the stakes of God's name, of God's reputation in all of the world. He says, the message of Christianity is God so loved the world. The message of Christianity is that, 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 that God so loved every aspect of his creation that he, he loved you and he loved me so that. Jesus didn't die to save you. He died to save you so that. He died to save you for a reason, for a purpose, so that all the world might know the grace and the mercy and the love and the beauty of God, so that every aspect of his creation might be redeemed. That is what is at stake in terms of Christian hypocrisy, that, that Christianity is more than simply about me. It's more than, uh, if that's the message of Christianity, then everything, you know, I, I choose a church that fits me. I choose the music that fits me, the programs that fit me. Uh, I make decisions on what I'll purchase, the house I'll own, the car I'll drive, all those things that suit me, rather than through the lens of what is bringing about the reputation and the name of God as a gracious, merciful, giving, sacrificing, loving God in all the earth. That is what is at stake what is at stake is the name of God in every interaction, in every situation. Every time you and I walk into the grocery store and interact with people, the name of God is at stake. Every time I get on the phone and talk down to that customer service representative that doesn't know what she's talking about, the name of God is at stake. Every time I interact with and talk to and deal with my neighbors on my street, the reputation, the mission of God to bless all the nations is at stake. Every time I go to work and exhibit my work ethic or treat my employees or employees 
in whatever manner the name of God is at stake in all the world. And Paul is saying the message of the gospel is a lot bigger than me. It's a lot bigger than you. It is about God's desire to bless all the nations. Christians so often portray the fact the mission of God is God at war in the culture, God at war with the world. God is not at war in the, with the culture. He's at war with everything that is breaking his world, everything that is taking away from the wholeness of his world, everything that is stealing away from the goodness and the beauty and the mercy and the truth that he has built into his world. Christians, so often we are known for what we are against. Let us be a people that are known for what we are for. Let us be a people that follows a God on mission to demonstrate His mercy and grace. And therefore, how can we not be a people who demonstrate mercy and grace? And I will say that as a congregation, you guys have taught, you have been my pastor in this because I I look out at so many of you and I see you doing things like tutoring. Uh, underprivileged kids, mentoring underprivileged kids, going across the world to build entrepreneurship and, and poverty relief in the world and, and medical missions. And I, I see in so many of you the heart to bless the nations, to build the rep, not, not to work on the mission of me, but the mission of God, not to work on the reputation of me, but the reputation of Jesus Christ as one of beauty and mercy. And when we come to Christ we see that he was not only hypocrisy's harshest critic, but he was also its most devastating victim. Right? Who killed Jesus? The very people that said, shall not bear false witness. They falsely accused him and arrested him. The very people that said, you shall not steal, they stole everything he had, including his own, the only change of clothes that he owned. The very people that said, thou shalt not kill, had him tried and killed in the cruelest most inhumane way possible. And when the threat of hypocrisy and judgmentalism came from the, from the religious of Jesus' day, he did not spew back anger, but love. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So as we come to Christ, let us seek to have our pride destroyed and humility created by the center, by the center of the gospel. Let us seek to have condescension and complacency eradicated and mercy built in. Let us seek to be people who are blessing and sacrificing and serving so that the name of God can be seen as one who is gracious, one who is merciful, one who desires not to destroy the world, but to bless it and to save it. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you came to save hypocrites like me hypocrites like us. Thank you that where we fail, you have succeeded. Thank you that where we look like the foolish college student trying to play basketball and losing 15 to nothing, that Lord Jesus, you have come and shown us what it looks like to be full of grace and truth. What it looks like to demonstrate mercy to the wicked. I pray you would build our hearts, that you would challenge our hearts. You would destroy pride and give us humility. You would destroy condescending, complacent attitude and give us mercy. That you would destroy desire to serve ourselves and give us a desire to sacrifice and bless every person from the end of our street to the end of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.